entering the Freedom Hut. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Really can't stay. Baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. Baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been hoping that you drop so in. very nice. I'll hold your hands. They're just like ice. My mother will start to worry. Beautiful, what's your My hurry? My father will be pacing the floor. Listen to the fireplace so roar. So really, I'd better scurry. Beautiful, please don't well, hurry. Well, maybe just a half a drink more. Put some records on while I fall. The neighbors might But maybe it's bad out there. So I love that song. And this is Lisa Booth with the Buck Sexton Show. I'm filling in for him tonight. Obviously, I don't sound like him, which is probably a good thing because that would be weird. But all right, so I am really fired up about this right now. So we've got radio stations in Cleveland and San Francisco that have banned this beautiful song, Baby It's Cold Outside, a Christmas classic, goes back to 1944. They have banned this song. And one of the hosts of the radio, one of the radio stations that banned it, Glenn Anderson, had this to say. He said, the world we live in is extra sensitive now. People get easily offended. But in a world where Me Too has finally given women the voice they deserve, this song has no place. But isn't that kind of the problem? One, that the world has gotten that sensitive that a song from 1944 is somehow a problem, but also the Me Too movement and how far it's gone, that the lyrics of the song somehow imply you know, something nefarious. And what really drives me insane is I really think it sort of puts the viewpoint of the left in perspective. One, from the censorship standpoint, they don't like something, they shut it down. But two, that somehow women are victims. And you look at the words of the song and the woman in the song decides to stay. So who cares if she's asked three, four times to stay? It's her choice. She has agency. If she wanted to leave, she could have left. She decided to stay. She decided to have enough, another drink. And according to the song, it was cold outside. Wouldn't you want to stay inside and have another drink, particularly if you're hanging out with someone you like and someone you're having fun with? So how ridiculous is it to imply somehow because she's asked a couple of times that, you know, she's she can't make their own decision to stay, that she's a victim. It paints her as weak. And that drives me insane as a woman. But it really is the same approach that the left applies to a lot of things, even for the equal pay uh, argument from the left. Essentially, what they're implying is that women need a government mandate or government in- intervention to get paid more. And how ridiculous is that? And even if you look at studies, they don't even break that down. Most often, the breakdown in pay comes from decisions that a woman makes, either time in office or choosing less lucrative careers. But it just really irks me that the left believes somehow that a woman can't do it on their own and that they need a government intervention. And another aspect of this that I find you know, really just scary and terrifying is sort of for the relationships between men and women. There was also this Princeton acapella group that decided to pull the plug on the Kiss the Girl from Little Mermaid. Everyone knows that song. I'm not going to sing it because I have a terrible voice. Nobody wants to hear that. But people at the university said that it they raised concerns over misogyny and that it was dismissive of consent. How ridiculous. Somehow a song just about kissing a girl is going to trigger people. I mean, how insane have we gotten? And, and where has this led us as well? The Daily Wire recently reported about 
women and men in relationships having to enter some sort of dating consent agreement and shooting videos regarding consent because men are so terrified about getting caught up in this Me Too movement. And it really concerns me because you look at what the over correctness or the overcorrection we've seen in society about the Me Too, and it actually negatively impacts women. You know, Bloomberg interviewed around 30 senior executives on Wall Street, and they actually found that men are walking on eggshells because they're so terrified of getting caught up in the Me Too movement that they don't even want to be around women. And I found this interesting because Karen Alinsky, a president of the Financial Women's Association and a senior vice president at Wells Fargo, said the following. She said that women are grasping for ideas and how to deal with it because it's affecting their careers and it's a real loss. So essentially what has happened is because of the Me Too movement and this overcorrected, you know, overcorrection in society that we've seen, women are actually worse off and men are terrified to be around women. And can you blame them? I mean, you look at what happened to Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh and the railroading of him over baseless allegations from people like Christine Ford, where we've seen numerous inconsistencies with her stories. We saw lies about flying, lies about the second exit of the house. I mean, can you blame men for being terrified of living in this society? I remember a while back, there was a woman named Emily Linden, I believe is her name, from Teen Vogue. And she said that it doesn't at all concern her if innocent men's Uh, lose their jobs over false accusations because it's more important to bring down the patriarchy. I mean, how terrifying is that? That it's okay for an innocent man to get caught up in something that he didn't do just to prove a bigger point? That's where we're at, people. And look no further than what Senator Maisie Hirano also said during the Supreme Court confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. She said that men should just shut up. So men listening, that's what you should do. That's what people on the left, that's what some of these women believe, Maisie Hirano being one of them, to shut up. And Senator Gillibrand also further proved this point uh, just this week. She tweeted out that the future is a female, to which Donald Trump Jr. rightfully responded. He said, should I tell my boys ages nine, seven and six that there is no future for them? So, you guys, this is the kind of society that we're living in right now. And you know what? It may just be a banning of the song is the way the left views this. But I view it as so much bigger. And these are issues we're facing as a society. The oversensitivity, the censorship of the left, and also what the overcorrection of the Me Too movement has brought. And we really saw that come to fruition with the Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh hearing. And we're going to see a lot more of this. So, people, if you were living in these states... Or, you know, in, in these cities where these radio stations are banning Baby It's Cold out cl- Outside, you call them and you tell them that you want them to play it. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Lisa Booth filling in from, for him tonight. You might know me from Fox News. I'm on Outnumbered sometimes. I do a bunch of stuff over there. I've also written some columns for The Hill and for The Washington Examiner and spent some time on Capitol Hill and campaigns as well. We've got an awesome show for you tonight. We've got National Review, Andrew McCarthy. We're going to talk to him about the Mueller probe. We're going to talk to Stephen Yates about China and trade. Jesse Kelly, who thinks that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez should not be underestimated. You're going to want to stay tuned for that. And we're also going to talk immigration with Center for Immigration uh, Studies, uh, Andrew Arthur, and also FAIR's R.J. Hammond. So you're going to want to stick around for that. It's going to be an awesome show. But first, I wanted to get your take. 
you know, on what I had said earlier on in the show about the Me Too movement and the ban on the the Baby It's Cold Outside song. So why don't you call in if you're if you're around? Would love to hear your thoughts. Phone number is eight four four nine hundred buck. So tune in. Would love to hear what you have to say. And also another person who I want to hear what they have to say is producer Mike. Mike, how did I do there with that? What did, what did you make of my opening uh, statement there? I thought it was outstanding. When you said you came in and you said you wanted to talk about that, I was like, yeah, I'm like, that's pretty good. Because like on the surface, I when this debate was going on, I, I just found it utterly ridiculous. I was just like, here's the left losing their minds again. But like, like when you get into it, and what just happened with Judge Kavanaugh and the environment we live in, it's serious. You know, it's, from a guy's point of view, like it's not like it used to be. And you, you have to be cautious um, about dating. And when you can take a 74-year-old song and make that out of it, I think it's ridiculous, but scary. You know? Well, and that's what's... And look, I'm all, I'm all for like the Harvey Weinsteins going down and, you know, people like that, uh, right. you know, who are doing terrible things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm not okay with, you know, the baseless allegations 36 years later that are unproven, no corroborating witnesses, no corroborating evidence, and trying to bring someone down off of a, beer, a mere allegation. And that's what really concerns me because I have three brothers. Yeah. And, you know, so I look at this both from a female perspective, but yeah. also someone who has been raised in a family of, with guys. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of terrifying. And I was telling you about this study that I found really interesting. And so I'm a senior fellow for this group called Independent Women's Voice. Right. And our sister's organization is the Independent uh, Women's Foundation. And so they, they flagged uh, this study that I found super interesting. All right. And so the study's done by Valentin Bolotny. I'm sorry, uh, Valentine. I, pr- I probably butchered your name so i apologize for that also natalie emmanuel and so essentially what they did is they looked at several years of data with the massachusetts bay transportation authority bus and train operations and what they found is that even in a unionized environment where tasks are similar hourly wages are identical and tenure dictates promotion that female workers still earned 89 cents on the male worker dollar and the reason they found was because of the choices that women make. For instance, in the, what they found that men take 48% fewer unpaid hours off, work 89% more overtime uh, hours uh, annually, and also sign up for 7% more scheduled overtime. And they take twice as much last minute unscheduled overtime. And I found that interesting because even in this really level playing field that you have, right. you still have women earning less. So what that tells me is perhaps these women on the left that are showing up at these rallies with the pink hats, mm-hmm. maybe they should spend more time not at these rallies and wearing these pink hats, but mm-hmm. maybe showing up at work, yeah, putting in a little bit more time or making different career decisions in the career fields that they're choosing. I don't know if you don't necessarily have to respond to that. <laughs> I want to get you in trouble. But. No, hey, I'm in trouble <laughs> every day here. But it's all good. But so what do you make of that study? I mean, is, is it as interesting as I find it or am I, am I just a nerd here? No, I, I think if you care Which about Which two this, of those things could be true at the same time. Yeah, they are. You know, nerd, Lisa. <laughs> Come on now. All good. Um, yeah, I, I, I found it very interesting. And uh, once again, like I said, like, I can't believe there's actually studies about this now. But why it's out there, I think it's you know worth paying attention to and, and worth you know talking about. Has it's, anyone called in and talked to us yet? Yeah, we actually have some. We have Mark on Mississippi on the line. All right. So he wants to talk about a little bit about it. And we're going to put him through right now okay. for you. All right. Hey, Mark. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing tonight? Good. Listen, I just wanted to put some info on when this started. I'm a 58-year-old white male. I've been at a chemical plant for 30 years. And the brainwashing classes, as I call them, started back in the 90s. And they kept changing the program. It started out expect respect, matter respect, women for this, women for that. And we have women that work, and they actually are making the same amount of money 
but just the things that have changed over the years. And they have a network for everybody but the white male. They have the LGBTCT, whatever all the letters are, Hispanic Network, the Black Network, Women's Network. And years ago, a colleague tried to start a Christian network, and we're told that you just can't be forming hate groups. Wow. So, but, but, but the women, you know, I heard you talking about some of them not making money at other places. I'm sure they're not. But they are here. And they're, you know, same as just men. There's some men that are can't carry their weight either. But when you get out there and you're talking about valves and 48-inch pipe wrenches and stuff like that, you know, they they give they get it, but they just change it around where they work around them. And there's nothing against women or anything. We got plenty of them that are good workers and can you know do better than some men. Well, the point I was it's making just, is that there's this. Classes, you know? Well, the point I was making is that there was this study that essentially in, you know, very level equal playing field that essentially what happened is that the choices of the women there dictated the outcome of the pay. So that was the point I was making um, is that, you know, it's a lot of times it comes down to choice. And again, back to my point earlier, agency and the fact that women aren't victims. We make our own decisions and we, you know, we make our own determination in life. So that was kind of more broadly about the point I was making. But do you find in the work environment has your interaction with women changed? Or are you worried with, you know, sort of the Me Too movement and that interaction with the, you know, women at uh, your organization? I mean, I'm, I've been married to the same lady for 31 years, so I try to avoid, I do like the, I guess they call it the pence method. I don't show up with anybody alone or working together or anything. It's always more than just me and another woman doing a job or something, you know, and that may seem terrible, but I mean, that's just the way, I mean, I'll give you an example. We had a man that was becoming a supervisor in our area. He brought a lady in that really wasn't one of the good workers, and he brought her behind closed doors. Well, it wasn't two, two months after that he went back to his tools because he was told under no circumstances or you'd go one-on-one behind closed door, you know, he was just trying to give her a performance review and tell her what she was doing wrong, but that was just a big insult, you know. Well, it sounds like you're... ruined a a good person. Well, it sounds like you're a smart man, and as they say, happy wife, happy life, right? (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, you have a great night. I appreciate you calling in. All right, we're going to go to uh, Nick now in Queens who wants to talk about this as well. Okay. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lisa, how are you? I'm doing well. How's it going? Good. Excellent job so far. Oh, I appreciate that. That's better than the alternative, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and I'm I'm the one I always tweet you pictures of when you're on TV. Oh, awesome. I so appreciate I, that. And I, and I show you pictures of my niece every once in a while. Oh, yeah. But, and uh, I've, got a, I've got a niece as well. Um, she's a little cutie <laughs> yeah, pie. So that's a really fun thing to have. Um, yeah. And so what, what, so what were your thoughts then on, you know, what I had said uh sort of regarding the banning of baby it's cold outside and sort of more broadly this overcorrection in society regarding the Me Too movement. You know, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's ridiculous. And I think you actually probably said it on TV that think of the other songs that are on the radio and the, the rap songs and all these other songs that are on the radio, but those are fine. But, you know, an old time Christmas song is not. Right. Uh, and that's that's just, you know. That's just really the the PC police are just it's it's out of control and you know I my my kind of theory is I'm going to do whatever I want and I don't care what other people think. 
Well, and it's like um, if I want to listen to Christmas music, I'm going to listen to Christmas music. Same here, which is why we started the show with Baby It's Cold Outside, because I love that song. But they're coming for Little Mermaid. Kiss the Girl is a problem. They're also coming for Rudolph. So Rudolph needs to be aware as well. But Nick, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for calling in. And we appreciate you sharing your thoughts. All right. Yeah, I think we have one more t- uh, call, uh, time for one more call. Let's do it. Yeah. Alan in Ohio. Alan. Hey, Alan. Hi. How's it going? Okay, a um, lot of snow and sloppy weather here in uh, the Buckeye State. Ah, well, you know, that's... But I had a... Huh? Oh, sorry, go ahead. But I had a couple comments about this song, and it shows a lot of ignorance on the left side, because I work with traumatized women, and I think... What do you do? This whole... Uh, I'm a counselor. Okay. And, and I think this whole... Um, protest that they have against this song minimizes what it's really like for a woman who's been truly traumatized. That song and that movie does not begin to um, parallel in any way what happens to women who are physically restrained, blocked from leaving, and I think that it, it trivializes the whole issue. Um, the second observation I just wanted to make real quickly is that I think it's sexist because if the roles were reversed, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. If it was the woman asking the man to stay, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So I think the whole fact that they point out uh, a problem here shows that they have a sexist, sexist uh, viewpoint. Well, you know, that's actually that's a great point you make because... You're right. I mean, look, if, if, if this song was about a woman saying that to a man, they'd be like, oh, look at her. She's so strong. She's so empowered. She makes her own decisions. But exactly back to you know your point and what I was saying earlier, it's like the fact just because he's asked her, you know, a couple of different times, somehow she can't make her own decisions. I mean, in, in the end of in the end of the song, she chose to stay. She wanted to have another drink. So, I mean, you know, it goes back to, you know, that point about agency and ab- ability for a woman to make her own decisions. But you're right. If the roles were reversed, the dynamics of the conversation would be completely interesting. Uh, thank you so much, I, for Alan. Uh, you made some really interesting points tonight. So we really appreciate your time. All right. And again, Lisa Booth filling in for the Buck Sexton show. You know me from Fox News, I think, and some other places. So stay with us. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. We've got Andrew McCarthy from the National Review and also a Fox News contributor. And I've had the honor of being on the Fox News's outnumbered couch with him. Andy, you're such a smart guy. So I'm so glad to have you on the show tonight. And just, you know, so much about the Mueller investigation, everything that's going on. So I'm just so thankful that we've got you to break it down for us. So, you know, Andy, first of all, I want to start off. Judge Napolitano, one of our coworkers from Fox, made some news uh, yesterday, he said that he believes that Don Jr. will be indicted. Uh, do you believe that statement? Do you believe him? Well, I don't see any evidence for that at the moment, Lisa. I think that um, we have a better indication that there was some kind of a criminal investigation going on. I don't. I don't really. I don't know what Napolitano was referring to. I know that people are um, looking carefully at his testimony in the in the senate but so far you know the only intriguing thing there is that he says that uh he did not speak to uh then candidate now president donald trump about the russia meeting at the 
Trump Tower in June of 2016. Uh, the only two people, I think, who, who know that one way or the other um, are Don Jr. and the president. And from what I understand, one of the things that uh, Mueller's been putting pressure on uh, Paul Manafort, where they've had a falling out after Manafort was uh, trying to cooperate with the investigation, uh, Mueller's evidently been putting pressure on him about whether the president knew about uh, the Trump Tower meeting and whether Don Jr. had told him. I don't know what other evidence, you know, what other transaction they'd be looking at, but I don't, to what, at least the way I understand the investigation right now, I don't think they have evidence to charge him. Well, and I wanted to ask you that because I read your column the other day, um, and the case you made is that you know Mueller is not, or he's building a report. He's not building sort of a criminal case. And right. so if you can, for our listeners, if, if they haven't read your column, which they should, and I advise everyone to go and read it, uh, but can you just sort of summarize that for us and why you believe that he's building a report and not a case? Yeah, sure. Well, no prosecutor builds a case, Lisa, the way that Mueller is going about it. So what, what you want to have when you're building a criminal case is a cooperator who is an accomplice who is involved in what you say is the main scheme. And then what you do is you bring that cooperator into court to plead guilty and you have him allocute to the full extent of the conspiracy. So you say, yes, there was a, yes, there was a conspiratorial arrangement. Uh, I was involved in it. Uh, you know, these other three people were involved in it. Here's what they did. Here's what I did. Uh, and that's how you go about it. The last thing you would do as a prosecutor trying to build to the crescendo of a, of a big case would be to plead all of your possible big important witnesses to charges of lying to investigators. It would mean that the one enduring thing that a jury would come away with after watching your case is that uh, they can't believe a thing any of your witnesses say, which is not the way that you uh, that you go about it. So I think Mueller's problem, and this has been the problem I've I tried to identify when he was appointed, without the basis of a you know without any factual uh, grounding for a criminal investigation. Um, from that day forward, there has never been a time when it seemed that Mueller had evidence of anything criminal in the way of a scheme between the Trump people and the Kremlin. And I've always thought, Lisa, that that's the reason they refer to it as collusion, uh, because collusion is a weasel word. And, uh, you know, it just means concerted activity. You and I are colluding by having this conversation. Doesn't mean we're doing anything <laughs> wrong, right? What, what, what prosecutors care about is conspiracy, which is a criminal agreement to violate a law, a criminal law. And he's never had that. So I think that, you know, every, there are a lot of people who, who don't like Trump who look at all these pleas and they think, you know, very hopefully from their perspective that, that Mueller is piece by piece methodically um, built, rolling up people to get, uh, you know, to go up the chain, as they say, and finally get to Trump. But that only works when you're getting them to plead guilty to the thing that they did with Trump. And if they're all pleading guilty to making false statements to investigators long after the so-called collusion scheme, then you don't really have a collusion case. Well, so then, you know, my question to you then is, you know, what's the point of the Mueller investigation then? If, if there, you know, really isn't this criminal activity, um, you know, 
why even have the Mueller investigation to the begin with? Like to begin him, what is he doing? Yeah. What is the point of this investigation? That's always been a great uh, question, and it's you know one of the reasons I try to point out that uh, you know there is this distinction between criminal investigations and counterintelligence investigations. What Mueller was handed was a counterintelligence investigation. That's importantly different from a criminal investigation. In the latter, in criminal cases, what you're trying to do is build evidence so that you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody that you've identified as a suspect has violated a law. The point of a counterintelligence investigation is not to enforce the law. In fact, most, the vast majority of counterintelligence investigations don't have anything to do with criminal prosecution. The point of a counterintelligence investigation is to collect information about foreign powers that may threaten American interests. So, for example, in the Russia counterintelligence investigation, the thing that you're looking at is Russia, you know, to the extent that it, it, uh, it poses a threat to our election system and anything else it may pose a threat to. And the reason it's really bad to give a prosecutor a counterintelligence investigation is twofold. First, in the Justice Department, counterintelligence investigations don't get a prosecutor because it's not lawyer work. It's agent work. It's analytical work. There's nothing about having a law degree that makes you an expert uh, in intelligence analysis. So the only time the lawyers get involved in the Justice Department in counterintelligence is if the analysts need them to get, for example, a warrant under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to, to surveil somebody. So then the, the prosecutor will not even, not even usually prosecutors, they're just government lawyers in the Justice Department. They will go to the FISA court uh, and try to get a warrant for the agents, but they're not, they don't get involved in the collection or analysis of the evidence. So why you would put a prosecutor in charge of an important counterintelligence investigation uh, is beyond me. But the second reason it's really bad, Lisa, is what you want with prosecutors is for them to be assigned to something that already is suspected to be a crime when you assign the prosecutor. In other words, what we do in this country is a crime gets committed and then we assign a prosecutor. We don't assign a prosecutor and tell him, see what you can do to go off and find a crime. So um, that, that's not the way it works. So, so am I being overly, am I overly simplifying this and saying that, you know, it seems like Mueller is in search of a crime instead of investigating a crime that's already happened? Yes, I think that with respect to President Trump, that has always been true. And one of the reasons that's uh, another of the reasons, I guess I should say that that's uh, that's a really bad way to go about it in terms of counterintelligence is, you know, if I assign you, Lisa, as a prosecutor to go investigate the robbery of the first national bank, we all know that there was a robbery. Uh, and we know that there's like three or four elements of uh, bank robbery that a prosecutor has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So the the transaction has understandable limits and parameters, and you either ha- you can either prove it or you can't after you know doing a, a adequate investigation. By contrast, a counterintelligence investigation, as we've just said, is just an information gathering exercise. And the guys who gather information will always tell you they can never get enough, right? So unlike a normal criminal investigation, it doesn't have any finite, you know, there's no sensible beginning and end to it. Uh, and it can be, just be 
an unguided missile or a or a fishing expedition with no natural beginning or end and it would be one it, it would be one thing if you did something like that in a normal prosecutor's office where uh, all the resources of the office can't be poured into one case you know you, every every case has to compete with every other case for resources but you know when you're when you're a special counsel situation it's like you you assign a prosecutor to one target uh, and then if you turn around and say, and by the way, we're not putting any limits on you, you're assigned to this person, and you scorch the earth as much as you think you need to to try to find a crime, that's not really the American way of, of doing investigations. Yeah, it's pretty terrifying stuff there. And look, I'd be remiss to not ask you about the Mueller sentencing report on Michael Flynn. It came out on Tuesday night. What are your takeaways from it? And also, is the media missing anything big about it that hasn't really been reported? Oh, yeah. I think that there's a lot in there. I mean, I know everybody says because there's so much redaction, you, you can't really tell what Mueller has. And there's there's something to be said for that. But I think it's interesting. Um, it, it seems to me that it confirms something that that I've been arguing all along, which is that, you, you know, you asked me a second ago, what is Mueller doing here? Right. I think a br- big priority that Mueller has is to justify the very controversial decision made by the Obama administration to conduct an investigation of the opposition party's presidential campaign, the, the presidency of Trump. Um, and, you know, I think that's what they're obviously uh, going about doing that. Uh, if you look at the Flynn memo, uh, what it seems to indicate is that They've bought on to um, exactly what the theory that the Justice Department had in in the Obama days before Mueller was assigned. So you learn that, you know, there was a Logan Act investigation of Flynn during the Trump transition. Well, you know, the Logan Act is not a good basis to conduct a criminal investigation. It's this two-century-old provision uh, that that, uh, never has been prosecuted successfully in the Justice Department. And when... Uh, when Flynn was in the Trump transition, his job was to deal with counterparts from other countries. So, I, you know, I don't think that's a, a proper basis to be conducting an investigation. And yet, you know, Mueller seems to adopt that. So I think a, a big part of what he's trying to do here is even if they don't find any citable criminal offenses by they are going to they are ultimately going to say uh, that there was plenty of basis for the FBI and the Justice Department to be suspicious. So why aren't more people reporting that then? Because you, you you look at that, there really doesn't seem to be a basis for the FBI ever intervene, interviewing Flynn in the first place. He didn't do anything wrong with talking to Kislyak about sanctions. He was part of the incoming administration. This has happened before. Um, so why why aren't more people talking about that? I think because the the media, by and large, is anti-Trump, and they like the investigation. And you know, ultimately, Congress is not limited, Lisa, to criminal violations. High crimes and misdemeanors don't have to be indictable criminal offenses. So it's always possible that Mueller could turn up something that might be impeachable, even if it can't be used to indict Trump. So they like the investigation. All right, Andy. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I knew you would be an awesome guest. So, so thankful for you joining us um, this evening and making sense of everything <laughs> for us. Thanks so much, Lisa. Always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Hope to see you soon. All right. Yep. Have a great night.
Mueller's not involved in a investigation. Mueller has a Trump destruction project. Uh, he brought on a team, all of them dedicated to destroying Trump. They've done everything they could to destroy Trump. Part of that technique is you throw the kitchen sink. Uh, you basically threaten somebody and say, I'm going to bankrupt you. I'm going to put your son in jail. I'm going to charge you with so many different crimes, you'll never get out from under it. Uh, now would you like to talk? And when you have the full power of the federal government against you, it's pretty tough not to try to find a way uh, to get them off your back. But it has nothing to do with the truth. It has nothing to do with justice. Historians someday will comment that this was one of the most extraordinary efforts to undo the will of the American people by an established bureaucracy and its establishment friends that we've seen in all of American history. Okay, so that was Newt Gingrich. And we've also talked to Andy McCarthy just um, in the last break. And again, I urge you to go read his column. It's called Robert Mueller's Plan. Because I really, you know, I've got a lot of concerns about this. And to his point, if Robert Mueller is building a report, not a case, then what is the point of the Mueller investigation to begin with? If there's not criminal activity that he's already, that he was looking at from the inception of this investigation, what is the point of his investigation? And it's also, it's not just Newt Gingrich. It's not just Andy McCarthy that have raised questions and kind of rung the alarm on this. There's also this column in USA Today not too long ago by Michael Mukasey, who is a former attorney general who served under George W. Bush, um, who raised the point that the special counsel investigation should have never started from the beginning, that there wasn't a justification for the investigation. And now here we are. Uh, taxpayers have been on the hook. And what have we gotten from it? Where's the collusion? Where is the crimes in relation to conspiracy that Andy McCarthy was talking about earlier? Yet, But yet here we are. I want to talk to you about ExpressVPN. Every time you go online or you use public Wi-Fi, you're actually putting information in danger. And all it takes is a one-time, one-time and a hacker could have enough information on you to steal your identity. By infiltrating your internet traffic, hackers can open bank accounts in your name, access your emails, and destroy your credit for years. That's why I decided to take my privacy back by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. And if you don't want to hand over your online history to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. So protect your online activity today and find out who you, how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com dot com slash buck for three months free and a one year with a one year package visit expressvpn.com slash buck to learn more welcome to hour two of the buck sexton show lisa booth in for him tonight i've got stephen yates on the line he's a former national security advisor to uh former president dick cheney vice president dick cheney 
Um, and Stephen, I'm so glad you're here because I really want to talk to you about what's going on right now with China and trade. The Chinese Minister of uh, Commerce said on Tuesday that the meeting in G20 at uh, the G20 summit was very successful and that the two countries are over the next 90 days going to seek to try to formulate a more specific deal. So where are we right now with China on trade and also what happens in the next 90 days in, in your opinion? Well, Lisa, I think we're kind of running in two tracks at once right now. Uh, I think everyone has come to the awareness that Donald Trump is a different kind of president and he's taking a an unconventional approach to negotiating with China. And this is a major, major issue for his presidency, but also for him personally. He's talked about it for decades, trying to rebalance what he sees as, I think accurately, the raw deal Americans have had in doing business in China. Uh, and the second track is managing the politics of the near term and going into next year. Uh, financial markets were getting skittish about Fed moves potentially and the uh, kind of dark horizon of a tra- trade war with China seemed to be rattling a few cages. I don't think that Donald Trump is going to go wobbly in negotiations with the Chinese, but we definitely have a bit of a back and forth in the history of U.S.-China relations and certainly going back the better part of 30 years of my working on China-related issues, I've never heard of anyone putting a 90-day horizon out there with China and expecting real measurable results. So if we get something in those 90 days, that's unprecedented. But I think the president is pushing in the right direction to try to give the Chinese goalposts. And then if they fail to meet them, well, then he goes back to hitting them with the hammer of tariffs, which he said he is famously the tariff president. So do you think you'd mentioned his unconventional approach? I mean, do you think it's working, the tariffs against China and sort of this tougher approach? Is it working? Well, it certainly worked up to the G20 meeting. Uh, the Chinese were feeling pressure. I think the leadership was feeling pressure, political and economic. Uh, there's a kind of an open question among those of us who try to watch these things really closely about whether the Chinese feel like they got a 90-day breathing space or whether they kind of had this personal heart-to-heart at the leader level. Now, I am a deeply skeptical person when it comes to having a heart-to-heart with the head of a Communist Party of any country, much less the Communist Party of China. that's fair. (laughs) They have a heart. Uh, And so uh, I I don't really believe in personal chemistry in negotiating with China, uh, but the president believes in playing that in his negotiations. Uh, So the combo of trying to build some rapport, Pressing them with tariffs and the threat of future things coming back probably is the right thing. But frankly, the Chinese only understand power and pressure. Uh, and that's what they'll respond to. Friendliness, they'll just eat up for, for lunch and come back and say, can I have another serving? And so I think the president's going to have to be prepared to be tough through 2019 and onward. Uh, but if we get net progress along the way, I'm happy with that. Just don't backtrack. So you're thinking this is the the long road ahead then. This is going to take a while. Absolutely. That's that's my view. I mean, I'd love to be proven wrong. I'd be happy to see the president get a breakthrough and recalibrate the U.S.-China trade relationship. But we have been, I think, on a fantasy for the last 50 years about giving economic benefits to China and favorable dealings with China, letting them get away with things we don't let any other country get away with, on the expectation they become more modern, more like us, less of a problem. And I think President Trump accurately read that a majority of Americans don't buy that anymore. And guess what? The statistics and the reality of doing business in the world doesn't back it up anymore. And so we've got the theft of intellectual property, 
imbalanced trade and a lot of non-tariff barriers, which is a technical way of saying unfair ta- trade practices beyond taxes that uh, the Chinese have gotten away with. And we this is just desperate need of a rebalance. Well, so I support the direction. I'm just not optimistic it'll be a near-term harvest. And you had mentioned the intellectual property theft, and that, of course, was part of the justification of tariffs on China and in this tough stance that the Trump administration is taking. Of course, they did a seven-month investigation into China and found a loss um, economically of about $50 billion to you know corporate America and corporate earnings. Can you just break down for the listeners just the impact of the intellectual property theft, what China is up to and why it's so important to know about this and to call China out on it? Well, first and foremost, I think the scale is is much larger. Uh, and so we're probably really looking in the ballpark of like $600 billion worth of intellectual property being stolen from American interests over recent years. And that's not like going back 30 years. It's just going back into recent years. And so what happens is companies try to go into the ever-large China market, thinking they'll get market share, increase sales, have an export platform, and the Chinese will add on fees, force technology transfer, have their people trained up to basically spy on you and copy what you do. And after a certain amount of time, they become incredibly competitive under a national brand to do exactly what you do. And the government there will favor the national brands over foreigners. And sooner or later, you find yourself squeezed out of the market you thought was enormous and key to your long-term growth. So there's been, over the last 25 to 30 years, there's been a number of big companies and some small entrepreneurs that have literally had their lunch eaten by the Chinese this way over and over and over. The first few times, people can say, oh, this is just working the kinks out, and there's some winners and some losers. But this is a long-term pattern now where entire companies get engulfed, major technologies get overtaken, and some of these technologies are critical to our vital infrastructure, like 5G technology and cellular uh, communications and lots of semiconductor parts and everything that's in the technology that we live our lives relying upon uh, for security, but also everyday commerce and just getting around town. Uh, This is now a vital part of our economy, and the Chinese have really taken a huge stake in it. Uh, And and now it's difficult to do something to push back. So President Trump's gotten, obviously, a lot of criticism um, regarding his approach on trade, uh, a little bit less on China, you know, more um, on, you know, regarding surrounding NAFTA and Mexico and uh, Canada. But um, staying on trade, do you think, I mean, what other approach does President Trump have then to try to, if he's trying to extract concessions from China, or if he's trying to get them to lay off the intellectual property theft, theft outside of tariffs, you know, what other options are available to President Trump in trying to kind of lay the hammer down on China? Well, some of what he's done broadly on trade, while not directly targeting China, I think has had an impact on negotiations with China and the realities of dealing with them. Uh, number one, the the successor agreement to NAFTA. Uh, had Canada and Mexico agree to conditions that Chinese can't go make uh, a favorable agreement with one or the other of them and sneak their way in their goods or services into the United States and bypass our own laws and our own restrictions for security or other conditions. And so eliminating a NAFTA loophole that gave Chinese an unfair advantage by way of NAFTA had an impact on their economic strategy. Uh, also, recalibrating the trade relationship and our alliance structure with Europe 
At first, everyone said the sky is going to fall. This is going to wreck the world. Uh, but what it turned out was not only could these things be done that people said were impossible, but an increasing number of our alliances openly in many cases, but even more so privately, are saying we, too, want a rebalancing of China's behavior on security, uh, on unfair trade practices. The stealing of intellectual property affects a lot of interests around the world. So there's a lot of quiet cheerleaders behind the, the administration's approach to try to tackle these issues with China. And frankly, there's no precedent. No leader in the world, not just in the United States, has really tried to pressure the Chinese to reverse this trend to date. And How so much? any progress tr- Trump gets is the first in the world. How much pressure is China feeling right now? I, I read an, a CNBC article saying that China's growth could be slowed about 0.6 percent. Uh, I think next year regarding or due to the tariffs, you know, how much pressure economically is China facing right now? Much more than than statistics would let us know. Number one, there's a long standing issue of how accurate are Chinese statistics, given that they are done by organizations controlled by officers of the Communist Party of China. Uh, And the other part of it is uh, for the United States, it's an infinitesimal fraction of our GDP is tied to trade with China. And for China, it's getting up into the single digits, uh, which sounds small to a lot of people, but that is like a hundred times more impactful on their GDP, their trade with us, than our trade with them is for the U.S. GDP. So in a very real way, there's economic pressure that is disproportionately on China that it is on the United States. Now, the industries in the U.S. that are affected, farmers primarily, but not limited to them, they have real pain. They have they had some uncertainty. Uh, and I think the administration and Congress have tried to address it. But uh, we should be under no mistake. Uh, and I hope the, the president's team is under no mistake. Uh, the pressure is much more on China. And the time to get your advantage is now while they're under pressure. Don't leave, get them up for air and hope that they'll be nice to you after this pressure has been put on them. So let's talk about, you know, kind of same question regarding the United States. How much pressure is the United States economy um, in effect with China and the, you know, retaliatory tariffs that they've put on us? And if this is the long haul, how much damage or how much pain are Americans going to feel? Well, certainly there are some sectors that have put all their eggs in the China basket. I think soybeans is one of those that comes to mind. Uh, But hay and some other uh, commodities that uh, affect agricultural states disproportionately, uh, there's, there's going to be long-term impacts. Now, part of the Buenos Aires G20 agreement was that the Chinese are committed to increase purchases of those kinds of commodities. Uh, and so we'll see whether that helps mitigate the longer-term uncertainty about this. Uh, but uh, there's two kinds of pressure that are going to come to play. One is economic and the other is political. The political pressure is, frankly, a bit more mixed. Uh, The president's approach is more Main Street than Wall Street. And frankly, there are elements of the new Democrat majority in the Congress that have a history of being more sympathetic to the trade policies the president has been pushing than his own majority in recent years has. And so the politics of this are definitely mixed. The Wall Street versus Main Street part of this I think is the most important part of going into 2020. And that Electoral College coalition that Donald Trump rode to victory in 2016, that is a belt of manufacturing that wants to see a rejuvenation of work here and sees China as an unfair player. 
Uh, and so I think that that's going to remain solidly behind him. So there's the economic pressure that I think Wall Street will keep, and that's going to be hard for the administration. But I think Main Street is going to mostly be supportive of this direction continuing. Um, so let's talk about the politics a little bit. You know, you obviously mentioned the incoming Democrat House. Uh, how much does that impact just that dynamics also with the Republican led um, Senate majority at one and looking at the you know renegotiated uh, NAFTA deal, essentially, and then two potentially any sort of deal with China? Well, I think that the Democrat majority is going to be very skeptical of deals with China uh, and the Republican majority probably um, balance would be inclined towards a more mainstream or conventional approach to trade and dealing with China uh, on balance. Uh, But the combo of an administration engaged in these kind of negotiations of their party and then needing to try to meet common ground. I mean, trade legislation has to come out of the House because usually it's dealing with taxes, revenue, tariffs, things like that. And so there's going to have to be bipartisan work to get something actually inked. But I think the politics of it actually favor the president in getting a coalition in the House. And if that happens, I think the Senate would be hard-pressed to try to stand in the way. Although, as you've witnessed as well as anyone, the Senate is the the body in which any one person can stand up at a grandstand, frankly, at any moment and bring things to a halt. And so that's just something we live with on every issue going forward. Right. All right, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate your insight on this. Anytime, Lisa. Thanks. Have a great one. Thanks. You too. Would you be willing to support some degree of law funding if you got a permanent bona fide solution on that? No. That would approve 1.3 at least no. billion for the border fence, correct? And No, not necessarily. Because no. that's what it was last year. So if you just extend that again... Wouldn't that no. cause a problem? No. I mean, it depends on how you spend the money. It's border security. It's about border security. But um, within that, there was money for the fence as well. Well, you're talking about a fence. You're not talking about a wall now. Speaking for myself, consider the wall uh, immoral, ineffective, uh, inexpensive. And the president said he promised it. He also promised Mexico would pay for it. So even if they did, it's immoral still, and then they're not going to pay for it. Soon to be Speaker Pelosi, which I really hate saying that. That is just really depressing that she's going to be the incoming Speaker of the House. Democrats obviously took control of the House. And this is what President Trump is going to be met with. Look, Democrats aren't going to support the wall. Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to play ball. They're going to continue standing in the way of President Trump and his efforts to try to build a wall on the southern border. And look, the only reason why he wants a wall is he wants it to serve as a deterrent from illegal activity at the southern border. And we're seeing right now why that is needed. When we saw most recently a thousand migrants in this caravan illegally trying to rush the southern border. And of course, they were met by customs uh, and border patrol agents with tear gas because they were trying to illegally cross into the United States and break the law. And the problem is we're going to continue to see these caravans of migrants coming and trying to exploit 
or laws if we don't change things. If one, we don't increase border security, and two, if we don't change laws in relation to immigration, particularly looking at things like asylum laws. Look, the reality is that these Central Americans coming over to seek asylum in the United States, 89% are going to pass that initial test. Only 9% are actually going to be granted asylum in immigration court. Think about those numbers. Almost 90% will pass the first test. That's how easy that initial interview is, that initial threshold, that initial bar to that they're trying to pass is. And only 9% will actually be granted an immigration court. That is troubling. If that doesn't tell you that our laws need to be changed, I don't know what does. And also, another thing that really irks me is the hypocrisy of the left when it comes to President Trump's calls for a border wall. If you remember back in 2006, Democrats like Dianne Feinstein, Ron Wyden, even Obama, Biden and Clinton all voted in favor of a border fence in 2006. Yet those same people, you've got Hillary Clinton, basically, you know, she made fun of President Trump and his desire for a wall. You had Democrats at the time saying, like Senator Dianne Feinstein, saying that they are solidly behind border security. Well, where are they now? But you know what? I'm going to talk to Center for Immigration Studies, R. Arthur, about all of this asylum, what is happening at the southern border with this caravan. He's going to break it all down for us. He's Center for Immigration Studies. We're going to talk to him about the asylum. We're going to talk to him about the wall. And we're also going to talk to him about this other really interesting story that's going on right now. This Honduras woman who crossed over into the southern border, jumped the wall to have a baby in the United States. We're also going to talk to him about birthright citizenship and if it needs to end. You're going to want to stay tuned. I'm not kidding you. It's going to be a great interview. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Lisa Booth filling in for him. We've got Art Arthur of Center for Immigration Studies. He is a resident fellow for both law and policy. We're going to talk to him about what is the latest with the caravan and what's going on at the southern border. Art, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Art. So I wanted to get your take. So there's some headlines today regarding a Honduran woman who scaled the border wall to have a child in the United States. So it sort of ignited this debate, which we've already seen really regarding birthright citizenship. President Trump talked about it during the campaign. He sort of recently talked about it as well. So you know, what does this tell us about the problems with birthright citizenship from your vantage point? Well, birthright citizenship uh, at least has become a magnet that draws individuals to the United States uh, in order to give birth. And you look at this specific example, and quite frankly, it points out uh, everything that's wrong with it. One, uh, the woman had an incentive to the United States. I think that she referred to it as her big reward for uh, making it to the United States was giving a ch- uh, birth to a child in this country. Two, she was eight months pregnant at the time that uh, that she actually gave birth. She undertook uh, a perilous journey to the United States. Uh, and again, entered illegally, uh, putting not only her life, but the life of her unborn child uh, in danger. So um, the fact is that, you know, this is a prime example of everything that is wrong with birthright citizenship. It encourages people to enter the United States illegally to undertake the arduous journey to come to this country. And then uh, it gives people an incentive to enter the United States, have United States children equities that uh, will make it probably next to impossible to remove her from the United States at the end of the day. So when President Trump was talking about ending birthright citizenship, he got a lot of flack. Some were saying that it's going to take a constitutional amendment. Where are you on that debate and what legally would it take to end birthright citizenship? Well, the uh, leading case 
uh, on this issue is a case called Wong Kim Ark, which is more than 100 and uh, I think 20 years old, interpreting the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And Wong Kim Ark involved an individual whose parents were actually permanent residents of the United States. Wong Kim Ark was born in this country, and his argument was that he was a uh, citizen under the 14th Amendment. And so even if you accept at face value, uh, you know, Wong Kim Ark, the idea that a, uh, a child born of permanent residence is automatically a citizen of the United States, there's still the question of whether or not individuals who are not uh, who are born to individuals who are here illegally, uh, not under the uh, the jurisdiction of the United States and Fourteenth Amendment, would be citizens. And quite frankly, I think that there is an argument to be made. In addition, there was a very strong dissent in Wong Kim Ark that said that the case was decided wrongly. It was decided very much according to uh, British common law and the idea of sovereignty and allegiance. Uh, many ideas that were rejected at the founding of this republic. So, one, uh, I don't believe that Wong Kim Ark is quite as broad as people say it is. And two, I think that it was wrongly decided. But the fact is that there hasn't been a case that's challenged it in the intervening more than a century. I believe it was uh, Senator Lindsey Graham who said that he was going to introduce legislation to um, end birthright citizenship. Do you know where Congress is on this issue right now? And do you know what the latest is with um, what Senator Lindsey Graham said? I do not. Uh, I have not seen a bill that would actually end birthright citizenship. I think the Wall Act, uh, which was introduced uh, by a variety of senators, actually does have uh, some legislation that does that. And Senator Graham may be one of the... Uh, maybe one of the senators that's involved uh, in that act. But again, I believe that this is something that could be done by congressional enactment. It's going to have to go to the Supreme Court, but I think that this particular Supreme Court would probably look at uh, you know, that case on uh, the principles on which it was based and would, uh, you know, in accordance with uh, you know, the, the founding documents of this country, and I think that we have a lot of originalists sitting on the court right now, would probably disagree with that uh, with the decision that Wong Kim Ark and I think that it would that if the uh, Congress were to pass legislation that would change uh, birthright citizenship that it would probably survive congressional review. The only problem is the clock is running out. I really don't expect Speaker Pelosi to be introducing any legislation to that effect um, in the 116th Congress. So, quite frankly, the door is closing quickly for a change to be made. So the woman um, from Honduras uh, who you know, scaled the fence to, to have the baby. She said that her and her family are looking for family reunification in Columbus, Ohio. They've got some family there. But that doesn't kind of speak to the and, and they're seeking asylum just for the listeners at home. Does this kind of speak to what's wrong with our asylum system right now in the sense that, you know, all the you know, most of the media, mainstream media, they say, well, these people are coming over, you know, they're fleeing the conditions in Central America, but isn't there also this other large component about it, where it's re- it's family reunification that they're seeking here in the United States, and it's also economic opportunities. Absolutely, and it's important to note that um, you know the fact is we have a higher standard of living than almost every country in the world. The vast majority of individuals, I believe, if given the opportunity to live in the United States, in fact, would. Plus, because we've had uh, temporary protected status, perhaps one of the biggest misnomers in immigration law from Honduras and from El Salvador for 
more than 15 years, we have a large population of people from those countries living in the United States. And that's a drawing factor for individuals who are from those countries. They want to reunify with their family members. They want to have better schools for their kids. They want to have better hospitals for themselves and their children. They want to have more economic opportunities. Again, that's perfectly understandable. The problem is it's just not legal. The uh, credible fear standard, which is the screening standard that's used by uh, Customs and Border Protection, or uh, used by U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services at the border for people who enter illegally, is very low. It's deliberately low. Uh, and for the better part of nine years, uh, only about 5,000 people claimed credible fear and got into the United States. But word got around that if you did claim credible fear, uh, that you had about an 80 to 90 percent chance of being uh, allowed into the United States and then being released. Uh, and in fact, that's what happened to Ms. Hernandez, the mother of the child. She and her family were released on uh, on Sunday. Uh, and let me just give you a, a fact uh, that puts this into relief. If you are detained, your case will be finished in about 40 days. If you're not detained, your case will take an average of eight years. So probably Ms. Hernandez and her uh, husband and her now two children and however many more children she will have will probably be in the United States indefinitely if she ever leaves. So what percentage of those individuals, you know, looking more at the eight-year mark, um, do they end up showing up in immigration court, or where do they go? Uh, the vast majority of the asylum claims get denied. Uh, a significant number of them uh, fail to file asylum applications at all, and then a larger percentage of them uh, either fail to show up for court or fail to appear for their asylum hearing. So... Uh, only about 53% of them ever file an asylum application, and the denial rate for those cases uh, is uh, higher than 70% at the end of the day. So, I mean, do you get the sense then, obviously based on you know some of the things you just said, that these people that are coming here from Central America, that they have an understanding of how to game the system? Absolutely. Uh, and again, you know, this, this seems to be uh, a fact that is lost on the press. They know that if they come with children, that they're going to get released on, after 20 days under the Flores Settlement Agreement. They know that if they claim credible fear, the odds are they're going to be allowed into the United States, even if they don't have an asylum claim. Uh, they know that uh, if their children, if they show up, that they're going to be released over to HHS within two days. So, these are all things that we want to dissuade people from doing. About 10% of all women who make the perilous journey from Central America to Mexico are sexually assaulted. About two-thirds of all of uh, the individuals who make that journey are assaulted in one way or another, and that's according to Doctors Without Borders. That's not a statistic from the United States government. So, you know, it's a amazingly perilous journey that we want to encourage people not to undertake. Plus, you know, we want to have respect for our own laws. But the fact is that when people in Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador see people like Ms. Hernandez get into the United States, give birth, and get released, it just encourages more people to come. So can I ask, because the, the, the approach of the mainstream media is the fact that, you know, they're concerned about the humanitarian aspect of what's going on in Central America. And, you know, these individuals, these migrants and, you know, some illegal immigrants that are trying to cross the border illegally coming over to the United States. Why then do we never hear about the aspect that you just mentioned about the dangerous journey and what happens along the way? Why is that never discussed? And if the media is so concerned 
about the humanitarian conditions. Why don't they talk about that? Well, you know, it's it's funny because under President uh, Obama, when he was faced with a similar situation in 2014, both NPR and National Geographic, if you can imagine, uh, spoke about the dangers. And uh, uh, I've written about uh, the articles that they wrote then. In fact, they talked about a specific pharmacy in Altar Sonora uh, where women would go to get birth control because of the high likelihood that they would be raped on the journey to the United States. Um and yet, for some reason, that part of the story gets lost. Uh, now all we see is the crying little girl next to the Border Patrol agent in the pink sweater. Now all we see is the mother dragging the uh, two children, one without shoes, one wearing a diaper, away from uh, the tear gas canister. Uh, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the way that the media feels about the president. Uh, any stick is a good stick to beat Donald Trump with, I think they believe. And they, you know, figure that uh, heart-tugging pictures of of small children, babies born in the United States, are effective tools to use against Donald Trump. And that's why I think uh, we see this and why we don't hear about how awful that journey is. ICE has attempted to put out statistics about this, but by and large, nobody ever writes about them. Uh, And the governments of those three countries encourage their nationals not to leave, but they leave anyway. Well, so one thing um, I found interesting about the imagery that you're talking about when there was, you know, I think about a thousand, this might be two weekends ago now, um, where, you know, you had the, I think, almost 1,000 immigrants uh, trying to rush the southern border. And that was the image that you talked about. And the Washington Post reported about why everyone was so focused on that picture. And they did it because they thought it contradicted the narrative that came from the White House. But one thing that I found interesting about it is that the children didn't have shoes in the photo. But it's my understanding that at these shelters in Mexico, uh, where they came from, that they do have shoes and clothing available. Is that correct? That's correct. And the fact is that, you know, this was a family that had made the journey. I believe they were from Honduras, and I believe, again, there was a father in Louisiana uh, for the two children. Um, So, and they were attempting to breach a rusty border fence that uh, had uh, accordion wire on the other side. I really am not 100% sure what that woman was thinking about putting children into that situation. I'm a parent. I had children that I had a child that age once upon a time. And if I were to attempt to rush toward police officers with uh, riot gear on uh, and a rusty fence and accordion wire, I'd probably be arrested for child endangerment. I certainly wouldn't end up with my picture splashed all over the Washington Post. Well, and, and also not to, yeah, not, not to mention the fact what they were doing was illegal and trying to cross the border illegally. But I'm glad that you had mentioned that because I do think that the way the media paints this um, just sort of tells everyone everything they need to know about where the mainstream is coming, mainstream media is coming from just in their bias about the Trump administration and immigration at large. But Art, we've got to get going. But thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate your insight on this. Very helpful. Thank you for having me. Was appreciate it. Have a great night. All right, you've got Lisa Booth filling in for Buck Sexton tonight. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Thanks so much for staying with us. So I want to play this clip for you about President Trump talking about Elizabeth Warren, and then we're going to talk about it. Take a listen. They're going to cover Pocahontas? Who was... Think of it. Think of it. She of the great tribal heritage. What tribe is it? Uh, Let me think about that one. Meantime, she's based her life on being a minority. Pocahontas, they always want me to apologize for saying it. And I hereby 
Oh, no, I want to apologize. I'll use tonight. Pocahontas, I apologize to you. I apologize. To you, I apologize. To the, to the fake Pocahontas, I won't apologize. No, it's causing her problems. You know, that name's good. Because now even the liberals are saying, take a test. Take a test. You know, the, I tell you, I, I shouldn't tell you because I like not to give away secrets. But this one, let's say I'm debating Pocahontas, right? I promise you I'll do this. I will take, you know those little kits they sell on television for $2? Learn your heritage. Guy says, I was born in Scotland. It turns out he was born in Puerto Rico. And that's okay. It's good. You know, guy says, I was born in Germany. Well, he wasn't born in Germany. He was born someplace else. I'm going to get one of those little kids. And in the middle of the debate, when she proclaims that she's of Indian heritage, because her mother said she has high cheekbones. That's her only evidence, that her mother said she had high cheekbones. We will take that little kit and say, but we have to do it gently. Because we're in the Me Too generation, so we have to be very gentle. And we will very gently take that kit and we will slowly toss it, hoping it doesn't hit her and injure her arm. Even though it only weighs probably two ounces. And we will say, I will give you a million dollars to your favorite charity, paid for by Trump, if you take the test and it shows you're an Indian, you know. I mean, come on, that's hilarious. I don't care if you like President Trump or not, but you can't not laugh at that. It's pretty funny. Well, it turns out, so remember that response and President Trump making fun of Elizabeth Warren, calling her Pocahontas, prompted her not too long ago to take a DNA test. You know, this was her moment to prove to everyone that she hasn't been lying of her about her heritage. She hasn't been taking advantage of structural or structural advantages in her career as a result. But turned out the whole release ended up being a massive joke And what we found out was that Elizabeth Warren is actually probably less Native American than the average U.S. white person. So she did this whole rollout as a five minute video. You know, she really thought that this was just going to clear her name. And instead, it ended up hurting her. And so today, word around the street from New York Times is that Elizabeth Warren, they have a he- the article titled, Elizabeth Warren stands by DNA test, but around her worries abound. And so essentially, word on the street is these Democrat operatives are really worried that Elizabeth Warren potentially had ended her own career, be- or uh, presidential ambitions, before they even got started. You know what? I even remembered when this happened, my first thought was she's done. Because she just embarrassed herself so bad by doing this rollout and actually inevitably ended up hurting her more than helping her own case. And it's also kind of hilarious what President Trump is able to push Democrats into doing, end up stepping in their own way, hurting themselves and potentially eliminating herself from the 2020 field. So I found that interesting. Wanted to share it with you. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Lisa Booth in for him. We've got Jesse Kelly on the line, and he is the host of 90, uh, 90.50 KPRC radio station. Uh, Jesse, so you recently made some headlines uh, inadvertently and not intentionally when Twitter banned you. Did you ever find out why Twitter banned you? <laughs> you know, headlines are headlines. So right. I'll take them all. It was me getting, quote, permanently banned from Twitter. And now my name was trending nationwide. So no matter what, I'll I'll take it. That's for sure. <laughs> so now I don't I don't I don't I don't know. I don't care. I mean, I, I really do not care. I didn't care that much to begin with. It's 
It's social media. They're run by leftists. And it's just something we all have to watch out for on the right. Right. All right. Well, let's get into, you know, some more substantive stuff. So I really enjoyed your column in The Federalist, and it's why the right should start taking Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez seriously. And I found it interesting because I I am one of those people. I mean, you hear some of the things she says, you see some of the things she tweeted out. I mean, she honestly thought that she signed uh, law into or legislation into law, which is obviously not the job of Congress. So it's really easy to kind of see these things, hear some of the things she says and just automatically dismiss her. But you say we should not. Why? Because it actually makes her more endearing because elections are not about it's not about you, Lisa. It's not about me. It's not about the political pundits who, who pay attention or, or even people who maybe don't have a platform, but people who pay attention. Those people know how they're going to vote. I guarantee you, me, the next guy, we know how we're voting in the next election. Elections are about the common man. They always have been. The guy who, who votes, but he kind of pays attention. He kind of doesn't. And in this day and age, in the social media age, it's all about charm and appeal. And it's a big reason why Trump is president. And, yes, she makes these idiotic gaffes. And I'm not defending them. Obviously, the things she says are dumb. I get that. But what the right does is we pile on her and pile on her and pile on her. We attack her as an idiot. And what we do is we make her a martyr to her supporters. And also the common man thinks, well, I didn't know that either. Well, I guarantee many people think, oh, I thought they did sign it into law. Well, why is everyone making fun of her? Stop being such a jerk. Plus, I mean, she's pretty. That matters. She's, she's charismatic. She's good with the camera. She, she has more appeal than people think. How do you think her policies play in the public? Obviously, she's talking about, uh, you know, single payer health care systems, these things with huge price tags. But do you think that matters to the average voter? I think some it does, some it doesn't. But I don't think socialism, especially if you look at like the Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump hypothetical numbers from 2016, Sanders crushed Trump by double digits and almost all of them. I, yes, things are going OK now. But I don't think socialism as a whole is that unappealing to the American public, not nearly unappealing as it should be. Socialism is, that's why I wrote the article, socialism is frightening. It's killed more people than Nazism or racism or any of the isms combined. It's a frightening thing, and America is not as far from it as those of us on the right would like to believe. Well, and so what's the best way for conservatives to fight that? I mean, you look at some of these polling and, you know, the way younger Americans view socialism, and it's pretty terrifying. So, you know, what's the best way then for Republicans to push back on that, for conservatives to push back? It's not necessarily going after younger Americans. Younger Americans, uh, as far as voters go, they don't matter. Everybody talks about younger people are always socialists. They're always Democrats. It's that old Winston Churchill line. If you're under 30 and not a liberal, you have no heart. If you're over 30 and not a conservative, you have no brain. They'll, they'll come around as soon as they start bringing paychecks in. But when it comes to a candidate like Cortez, attack the ideas. That's fine. Break down the mask. That's fine. But constantly barraging her with this, you're a moron. She's an idiot. She's so stupid. What that does is it personalizes it for people who may be lukewarm supporters of hers. Well, wait a minute. I kind of liked her. And now you're calling her an idiot. Now you're kind of calling me an idiot. It's the same thing the left has done with Trump. All of the criticisms of Trump are so personal. Trump supporters take them personally. They take them on themselves. And so it's made him even more powerful. That's a good point. I mean, do you think that conservatives do a good enough job in sort of articulating why her policies suck? <laughs> 
No, but then again, it's harder to do that in this social media world. I mean, it is a Twitter world, Facebook, Instagram. People don't like to accept that, but those things are extremely powerful now. And so it's snarky. It's 140 characters. It's get it in and get it out. And, and it very rarely do you have someone's attention span long enough to break down why it stinks. And that's something we do need to get better at, all of us. Well, and so you mentioned in your column, and you've spoken about this as well, of that, you know, relatability is so important now. We saw that be an issue with Hillary Clinton. I remember even David Axelrod um, was pointing out the fact that, you know, she people couldn't relate to her. The fact that everything came out of her mouth through a political lens that, you know, was part of the reason that hurt her. So, you know, taking that into account and looking ahead at 2020, what do you see from the left in terms of what the Democrat primary field is going to look like? It's going to be Beto. I would. I, I said. I said uh. this when he was running against Cruz. I told everybody. I said he's not even running for Senate here in Texas. He's running for president. He always has been running for president. You don't take those hard left positions in Texas and expect to win. But he did set himself up nationally. He has charisma. He has a national name ID now. And I'm telling you, he's going to boat race the entire Democratic field besides maybe Harris. Do you, I mean, you think he's just going to, you know, what was he on the, the skateboard across the presidential <laughs> debate stage? with the left? Yes, and that's my point, Lisa. Like, you saw that, and I saw that, and I uh, my eyes about rolled into the back of my uh, head. No. I was like, what is this idiocy? But we have to remember, we did that a lot to Barack Obama when he was running, too, and the things he would do and the way people fell in love with it. People loved that stupid skateboard thing. They love the little dumb things Beto does, so we can't dismiss it because we think it's stupid the left loves him and the guy has it whatever it is and it doesn't pay to deny it trump had it and the left denied it obama had it the right denied it there's always a guy there's always a superstar out there we like to roll our eyes at and call an idiot or or call all these other things but i'm telling you the guy has something and i think trump still beats him but you watch him come back and win in 2024 but see, you think he can make his way through a crowded primary field, Dan? Because I, I think, you know, what we're looking at right now is an exceedingly crowded... I mean, there's been a couple contenders rec- in recent uh, days saying that, you know, they're not going to run. But right now, it looks like it's still going to be a pretty big primary field. I mean, so you think he's able to break through the with the Kamal Harris's and the Cory Booker's of the world? Well, Booker, there's no way Booker's going to do it. He just doesn't have what it takes. Harris would be the only one, I would say, that would compete with Beto because she has the look. She has, she's really good. She speaks really well. Uh, obviously, former district attorney, so she knows what she's talking about. Even though I don't agree with any of her policies, but I think Beto crushes them all. I mean, yes, it'll be a crowded field, but you see who they're rolling out. It's a crowded field of a bunch of old, boring white people. Those are, those are not people who are going to energize the Democratic base. They're just not. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we will be looking ahead in the the coming months here to see if he ends up throwing his hat in the ring. I'll talk to you soon, Lisa. All right, Jesse, have a good one. You too. Thanks. Omaha Steaks is America's original butcher since 1917. Order with complete confidence. Right now, Omaha Steaks is giving an amazing limited-time offer to Bucks listeners when you go to omahasteaks.com and enter code BUCK into the search bar. You will get 74% off Omaha Steaks Family Gift Package, originally $195, now only $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut aged to tenderness, top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, two chicken fried steaks, four Omaha Steak Burgers, four snappy kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four perfectly browned potatoes au gratin, 
four made from scratch caramel apple tartlets, plus get four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company with over 100 years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef cut, beef hand cut by master butchers in Omaha. Again, this is a limited time package for only $49.99 when you go to omahasteaks.com. Type buck in the search bar and add the family gift package to your cart. Don't wait. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com. Type buck in the search bar to send the Omaha Steaks family package today. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Lisa Booth in for him tonight. I want to play you this interview that Buck did yesterday with Greg Jarrett, the author of The Russia Hoax. And essentially what Greg is saying it runs contradictory to what the, a lot of the mainstream media is saying about the Flynn's, Michael Flynn's cooperation with Mueller, that it actually is good for President Trump, because a lot of people are saying that, you know, Trump is done. This is really bad for the president. So why don't you take a listen to the interview? What do you make of this uh, latest series of of uh, events this week? Is it a, let's start with the Flynn no jail time, but substantial cooperation. What do you see in those documents? What's it all telling you? Well, the word cooperation is one of those wonderfully fungible terms. Um, cooperation can simply mean uh, he agreed to talk to us immediately and try to be as forthcoming as he possibly could. It doesn't mean that he actually was able to provide anything that is incriminating whatsoever toward Donald Trump in this so-called uh collusion investigation collusion's also you know this amorphous crime that doesn't really exist in the criminal codes is it some sort of conspiracy coordination with russians well this memo reveals none of that and in fact just the opposite um the memo itself makes no mention of collusion the addendum which is roughly uh 5 pages long is heavily redacted, but you can tell from how it's laid out and set up two things, that Flynn offered assistance on two subjects. First, he contributed something that's unidentified in a criminal case not handled by the special counsel. So that tells us it's not directly collusion related because it's handled not by Mueller. Second, Flynn seems to have answered questions about the Trump transition team's conversations with foreign governments, including Russia. But that can't be collusion either to win the election because the election was already over. So it's a bit of a mystery as to what is contained in the redactions. But I think it's evident to me and others that there's not much evidence of collusion being provided uh, by Flynn. And what do you take from the lack of any? I mean, we've had a few people already go down for the process crimes of lying over during the course of an investigation about no actual criminal conduct. Right. Papadopoulos, Alex Vanderswan. There's been a few of them. Papadopoulos got two weeks. Flynn looks like he's going to get nothing. Uh, do you do you gauge that more as a function of uh, Mueller thinking that the cooperation was just so exceptional, or is that also Mueller maybe not wanting to kick the hornet's nest even more? Because I, I think people realize that the FBI did Flynn dirty on this one. I mean, this this was this was a setup. I mean, there was a classified leak, and then right. the claim of the Logan Act to get this whole thing going. I mean, this is as as much a coordinated political hit as anything I can think of. 
Flynn should never have been prosecuted by Robert Mueller and his, his assembled team of partisans. Why? Because the FBI agents who interviewed Flynn concluded that he was telling the truth. That was confirmed by both uh, James Comey and his deputy, Andrew McCabe, when they uh, were interviewed by congressional investigators. The truth is, had Robert Mueller been forced to prove his case against Flynn in court, he would have lost. He probably would have lost the case against Papadopoulos as well. Why? Because the law requires that a false statement be made willfully and knowingly. Um, That's a very difficult thing to prove. If somebody's recollection of a conversation happens to be different than a, a transcript of the conversation or different than how the FBI or Mueller interprets it, that's not a crime. Uh, but, you know, Mueller applied enormous pressure on Flynn to admit to lying when, in fact, Flynn never lied. Um, and, in fact, Flynn became broke trying to pay his legal fees. And what was really unconscionable is, is that Mueller threatened to prosecute based on no evidence, Flynn's own son. So Flynn finally surrendered under the intense emotional strain and monetary pressures, which is really a shame. It's wrong. It's unconscionable for Mueller uh, to behave that way. Now, the Cohen plea also got some attention this week. What, what, what can you tell us about how you, how you read that and, and what comes next? Well, Michael Cohen is a prodigious liar and a tax cheat, (laughs) and he pled uh, guilty um, because he wants leniency in his sentencing treatment. Um, You know, this is the trouble when the government, Robert Mueller in this case, decides to get in bed with a known liar and criminal. Um, For all we know, Michael Cohen is lying about his lies. So we, I mean, he is not a credible uh, witness. And in fact, uh, because Mueller is going ahead with sentencing, it means he will never call Cohen as a witness in anything. So, you know, Cohen, in my judgment, is also a total zero when it comes to collusion. Uh, You know, he can talk about uh, payments, uh, which are perfectly legal under the Federal Campaign Election Act, uh, to women who said they had affairs with Donald Trump. Not a crime. What do you think about, and we're, by the way, everyone, we're speaking to Greg Jarrett, author of The Russia Hoax, The Illicit Schemes to Clear Hillary Clinton and Frame Donald Trump. Judge Napolitano, uh, your colleague over at Fox, said earlier today, uh, quote, I expect Donald Trump Jr. to be indicted. Do you agree with that assessment? Disagree? Well, um, given Mueller's behavior of criminalizing conduct that is not remotely criminal, um, that's altogether a possibility. Uh, You know, again, Flynn's a perfect example. He didn't lie. He didn't commit a crime. But Mueller prosecuted him nevertheless. So, um, as I, you know, I spent an entire chapter in my book, The Russia Hoax, explaining how the Trump Tower meeting uh, violates no law. You know, it's not a crime to talk to a Russian lawyer or any Russian, for that matter. Uh, Take a look at the Federal Election Commission website. Foreign nationals may participate 
in American campaigns, as long as they don't receive money or donate money. So to have a conversation with a Russian lawyer who purportedly is going to give you information about Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, that's, that's just not a crime. Um, so we'll wait and see what Mueller does, but, you know, he is the kind of unprincipled, unscrupulous uh, character, uh, Mueller, who would try to weaponize and criminalize that uh, which is not truly under the law a crime. Do you think that this is winding down? And, and if, if so, could you tell us why? Because I've been hearing that for, for quite a while and obviously, it has not been true for quite a while because this thing still drags on. Uh, are we going to be in, you know, springtime still talking about whether Mueller's got the goods? It's altogether possible, sure. Uh, these uh, independent councils and special counsel uh, investigations tend to drag on uh, well beyond uh, their merits. We certainly saw that in Whitewater, which went on for the better part of, uh, of four years, uh, and then ended up, you know, accusing uh, the president, Bill Clinton, then of something that had nothing whatsoever to do with the original mandate. So th- there's no telling when Mueller and his team of partisans will end this thing. They should have ended it long ago. There's not a whiff of evidence that Trump ever had some conspiracy or coordination or collusion with Russia to win the election. None. Zero. Uh, And it should have ended there. And in point of fact, Mueller should never have been appointed uh, because under the uh, federal regulations, you can only appoint a special counsel if there's some evidence of a crime first. And Lisa Page, who was the top FBI lawyer on the Russia investigation, testified two months ago. Um, that the entire time the FBI had the case, they never found any evidence of collusion. So this has been, with Robert Mueller, an investigation in search of a crime, which reverses and bastardizes the legal process and turns the federal regulations on their head. And that was Greg Jarrett, author of The Russia Hoax with Buck. Coming up next is R.J. Hallman of FAIR. He's going to talk to us about the upcoming spending fight on Capitol Hill. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Lisa Booth here. We've got R.J. Hallman on the line from the Federation for American Immigration Reform. He's the government relations director. R.J., I really wanted to get in to, with you about you know this upcoming spending fight that we're going to see on Capitol Hill. President Trump, of course, is demanding and pushing to get funding for the border wall. Where do you see, you know, you're covering all this and paying attention to it. Where is this fight heading and what do you foresee happening? Yeah, Lisa, thanks for having me on. Obviously, the border wall, President Trump's you know, key campaign promise. I mean, it's his signature issue. It's what everybody was screaming for on the campaign trail. But, you know, on, on, this, on that front, he's been largely stymied all year. I mean, every single funding fight we've had, you know, uh, congressional leadership has convinced him, oh, we'll do it next time, we'll do it next time. Well, now it's now or never. I mean, you have Speaker Pelosi coming in in January. She's not going to give you any border wall funding for the next two years. So right now, it's now or never. Obviously, with the, uh, the tragic death of uh, former President George H.W. Bush, kind of threw a wrinkle in some of these negotiations. As, as uh, many of your listeners may remember, the spending bill, the DHS-CR, was supposed to run out tomorrow, December 7th. So what they did today 
and, and it, I want everybody to understand because this is as swampy as it gets. <laughs> so what they did, what they did is they did a two-week continuing resolution to push the shutdown deadline from December 7th to December 21st, right up before Christmas. And, and Lisa, you've seen this before. I've been up in Washington and see this. The closer you get to Christmas, conservatives always get screwed. So this, you know, the bad news is that it effectively puts pressure on a lot of these members to cave and accept what leadership offers them just to get home for Christmas. And you know Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy. I mean, they're not really true supporters of, of President Trump's immigration platform, even though they let on like they are, and the border wall. So, you know, when you want to pass something that you know your base is going to hate, and, and you don't want a bunch of angry phone calls or get thrown out in 2020, then schedule the vote right up against Christmas while everyone's distracted. So, you know, it looks like that, that they just want to kind of tell President Trump that, hey, we can't get those votes. We need to pass a one-year extension of Department of Homeland Security funding into next year. Um, but, you know, again, right now it doesn't look good. It's now or never. That's why, you know, organization is urging, you know, our members and the general public to make your voice heard. Call your member of Congress and say you do support the President Trump's key campaign promise. You support border security. Um, because uh, Congress, all they care about right now, it looks like, is getting home for Christmas, even though they didn't accomplish what they were sent there to do. Well, I know this all too well from working on Capitol Hill. Um, and, and, RJ, I wanted to, you know, how much leverage do you think President Trump is going to use here? I mean, because we saw with the um, brief shutdown that, you know, what President Trump dubbed the Schumer uh, shutdown mm-hmm. over DACA. I mean, do you think he'll do that again? I mean, do you think President Trump is not going to play those games? You know, do you think he'll hunker down? Right. And how much leverage does he really have here? I mean, I know he can veto well, yeah. it. You know, you know as well as I do, again, it's, I think both parties, and I think this fear is generally correct, is everybody's afraid of being blamed for a shutdown. I mean, it backfired. It's backfired on Republicans before. It's certainly uh, backfired on Schumer uh, when he did that over DACA. And I think there's always a fear Again, I mean, this is why, you know, we think President Trump should use his leverage and try to, if he wanted to shut down the government, he should have done this back in March, you know, or, or a lot or a lot farther away than right up against the line here. But again, no, President Trump does have leverage. He, he can veto this thing. But again, when you take out, again, the damage and how long a shutdown would be, you know, Democrats could essentially run out the clock. Say President Trump's vetoes whatever they give him on the 21st, they could just hang tight for a couple weeks until they get in power and then send him something else. Rather than, you know, if they tried to pass something he didn't like, they vetoed it, you know, around this week, Democrats would maybe have to come to the table and not risk being blamed for a one-month shutdown. But again, you know, President Trump said, we remember back in September when he got a terrible spending bill. He says, I'm not going to sign a bill like this ever again. Um, he said that repeatedly. And, I mean, we're hoping he, he, you know, he puts his boots in the ground and, and sticks to what, it, what is his key campaign promise. Again, like I said, it is now or never. Nancy Pelosi will not give him any border wall funding. In fact, you know, Democrat appropriators, they're going to be trying to claw away money from border security and essential law enforcement functions as long as they pertain to immigration. You're talking cutting ICE funding, cutting CBP funding. They're not just going to not give him what he wants. They're going to take away from, from our border security and interior enforcement apparatus. So, I mean, I, he, he's in fantasy land, again, if he thinks that he can listen to the establishment Republicans on Capitol Hill and, oh, we'll get it next time. There is no next time. Also, one thing that always gets me is we've seen like a thousand people try to rush the southern border, legally break their way into the United States. You saw them do the same um, on their journey to the United States and breaking into, what was it, uh, Mexico or um, I'm getting yeah. the... 
Right. Doing that as well. Um, and then we're seeing recently, too, of people basically throwing their children over the southern wall to get into the United States. So just lawlessness. And to me, it kind of makes the case for what President Trump has been saying of increased border security and also a wall, right? No, absolutely. I mean, a wall is a wall is just one of the many things, again, that we need to do. And, and, and you know, people act like, you know, President Trump was exploiting the caravan and all those visions as, as, as you know, a manufactured crisis, if you will. And I, and I think it was actually manufactured by a lot of these open borders groups and everything that they know that we're having, you know, an, an immigration stalemate. And they know how, you know, toxic this is in our country. And they're looking to exploit the division and, and make almost a standoff, if you will. But again, uh, the border wall can't stop the caravan. And I think that's something that, you know, I wish President Trump would would understand a little bit more. You know, if he really wanted to stop this problem, I mean, it's of course, it's all well and good to want that $5 billion or even more for some border infrastructure. Walls work. We need to repair things down there on the border. A lot of the fence is, 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 needs repairs. I totally understand that. We support that. But President Trump has to call for closing our asylum loopholes. I mean, this is what is driving people up here from Central America. These coyotes down there that bring them up here, they know how to exploit our laws. They know what to say in their credible fear interviews to get released into the interior of the country. They know that if they bring a child, that they will get released because they can't be detained for more than 20 days. These laws are the ultimate pull factors. And we could have a wall from sea to shining sea, and they'll still, they'll, it'll still happen because these people will just walk right up to a port of entry or rush a port of entry and claim asylum and get released into the interior of the country. It is the new form of illegal immigration. It's not like the early 2000s when you had young working-age Mexican males streaming over the border and just running into the country. They turn themselves in immediately, and a wall certainly will not stop this. Well, and I mean, we saw that with the end of the zero uh, tolerance policy with President Trump, there is an 80 percent increase of families coming over uh, to the United States after that policy ended. So clearly people are figuring out how to game the system. So I want to talk to you about you'd mentioned the loopholes that need to be closed. Can you what are those loopholes and what needs to be done about it? Yeah, we, we look at about, you know, three main things. So so first, you've got to tighten the credible fear standard for asylum applicants. So credible fear, credible fear interview is, is, the, is the first thing you do when you make an asylum claim um, to see if it's, it's valid. And the Obama administration really liberalized the meaning, and it's created a situation where everyone thinks that they can get it. And, and what they need to do is impose, you know, penalties on migrants who make these frivolous claims, really tighten the standard of these interviews. Because right now, I think it's over 90% past that initial interview, and many of them eventually get their asylum claims denied. But, but as you know, um, it takes well over a year, sometimes two years, to get your asylum claim adjudicated because the backlog is so great. So what these people want to do is they really don't want to see their asylum claim all the way through. They know that if they get past this initial credible fear interview, that they'll get released into the country and they can just go disappear into the population. Uh, second thing we need to do is address the Flores settlement agreement that's a court settlement and that's what um, tricked that, up when president trump was trying to that that's what interfered with president trump's zero tolerance policy it was the correct. flora settlement correct flora settlement says that if your family units can't be detained or children can't be detained either for more than 20 days and then they have to be released and 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 if what we need to do is extend family detention and increase detention space so that we'll have adequate holding facilities so we don't have to release these people. And, and, and President Trump, when he did the zero tolerance thing, is he really exposed 
truly what the, the open borders left really wants to do. You know, he says, all right, all right, so we can either separate families. They go, no, you can't do that. And he goes, all right, well, let's hold the families together. And they say, no, you can't do that either. So then what do you want? That's just for them to be released into the interior of the country. Right, that's a good um, point. So again, if we, exactly, exactly. If we really want to stop this, again, we have to ensure that these people can be held together in detention. And I think the third thing is amending um, uh, one of our trafficking laws, which is the TVPRA, the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act. And, and that's a law, it's a well-intentioned law designed to protect minors from sex traffickers. But now it's just it's a, basically a foothold to get into the U.S. And, and we believe there are a variety of changes that can be made that would close this loophole that's being exploited while still protecting these children who may be at risk. And then I think more broadly, you know, you secure the border with more resources and staffing. You dry up the jobs magnet uh, by implementing mandatory E-Verify. You know, you send, the be- you send the message. No more funny business. I mean, we're serious about enforcing our laws. And, and Congress hasn't done that yet. You know, President Trump has tried time and again to do what he can through his executive authority, kind of the opposite of what President Obama did. And, you know, the, the ACLU or other open borders groups seem to be able to find an activist judge Anywhere, you know, and likely under the Ninth Circuit to, to stop President Trump, even though he has legitimate authority most of the time um, delegated to him by Congress. Um, and, you know, RJ, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, how much has word essentially gotten out to these Central American migrants about how easy our laws are to game? Because I know you had mentioned the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, 89 percent of these individual individuals are going to pass that first interview with immigration authorities. And my understanding is only 9% who actually show up in immigration court will be granted asylum. So how much has word essentially gotten out uh, about how easy it is to come here and at least pass that first initial te- or interview? Oh, it, it, it's, it's, it's widely known. I mean, even go back. So I remember back when president Trump, you know, uh, did DACA, um, he had to dispatch, uh, Joe Biden down to Central America to, to to tell the governments down there, hey, and, and to inc- let your people know that just because we're doing this DACA thing doesn't mean that you're you're going to be able to come. I mean, we see we've seen this time and again. Every time either Congress discusses or extends an immigration benefit, or even you know our laws get widely known as how they can be abused. These people down there are rational people. They take note. They know what their family members have done. They know what works. And a lot of these coyotes down there, you know, there was actually a Washington Post article uh, several weeks. Several of the reporters went down um, to Guatemala and were actually talking to people down there. Coyotes were encouraging people to go with a child. That a child is basically known as a get out of jail free card. I mean, that is that's a humanitarian crisis. I mean, we're our laws are encouraging people to bring their children, and sometimes not even their own children. It encourages kidnapping. You know, somebody in Guatemala could go kidnap a child, knowing that, you know, hey, that child's my get-out-of-jail-free card and a ticket to work in the United States. That creates a crisis down there. This journey up to, up to the United States from Central America is terrible. I mean, you have children that are raped, um, that they're, they're subjected to, to violence. You know, gangs are recruiting. I mean, it, it's a real crisis, and, and our laws are exacerbating the problem. Um, you know, it's not, you're not being inhumane. You're not acting without heart when you want to shore them up. Again, 
these people need to make the changes in their own countries to better the conditions down there rather than coming up in the treacherous journey to the United States and, and disregarding our laws. Well, and to that point, DHS put out a statistic, I think it was over the past two years, there's been a 110% increase in males bringing a child trying to enter into the southern border. So completely making your point. RJ, we're out of time, but I really appreciate you joining us tonight. RJ Hallman of FAIR. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Lisa Booth, I really appreciate you guys for sticking with me tonight. This is actually my first time solo hosting radio, so thank you to Buck for getting sick and allowing me this opportunity to fill in for him. I really, he's a friend of mine, so I really appreciate him uh, believing in me and not thinking I was going to screw it up. So uh, a great friend there. And I've also I've got uh, producer Mike with me right now because I heard that he actually takes issue <laughs> with where I went to college. So, Mike, what yeah. gives? I don't take issue. I you I mean, the, that's the way. That's well, what I heard. You want to talk about where you went to school? Yeah, I went to the University of Tennessee. Which is a phenomenal school. Phenomenal school. Yeah, great Rocky football. Top. Yeah, beautiful. Go Big Orange. Right. Well, I'm a Philadelphia boy, so I don't really have really a place to speak on the South, but... Well, then what's your beef with me? What's well, the have, deal? I have relatives who went to the University of Alabama. Well, I mean, it's not like you guys have anything to be upset with right now. No. Alabama's been, you know... They're amazing. Yeah, kicking butt with football. We just have problems with schools that really stink at football. You know? Oh, that's and, so rude. And right, and right now, Tennessee's not going so good. You know, it, so it's I actually... Like, you know, what, I want to talk to you about that. What, and what, what do you think is wrong with your program? Well, what's really tough is I can't really rebut that because, yeah. you know, but I see, I went to school when Philip Fulmer, Philip Fulmer, ever since Philip Fulmer, mm-hmm. and then also when Lane Kith- Kiffin mm-hmm. uh, screwed us over. Yes. Things just went downhill. And I'll tell you this, yeah. I think it's so funny because I remember there was a guy that put up, or guy or gal, who, I don't know if, who, who was behind it, put up a billboard on one of the major highways, yeah. and it read that Lane Kiffin was as faithful as Tiger Woods. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. I never saw that. Well, and that just goes to show you how much people love their football in Knoxville, Tennessee, that someone would pay their own yeah. money. to. I mean, the billboard's true. It's so I mean, intense he, down there. He was, he, well, I mean, it's true, because Lane Kiffin yeah. was you know, not a faithful, yeah. you know, he was a terrible coach. Yep. He screwed us over. Yep. Um, and He's so, not a good coach either. Well, that's actually, that's true too. But so I found that to be hilarious because someone literally spent their own money to send a message and an important message it was. Yeah. An important message. What is it about the South and like, because Alabama fans are the same. SEC is great. SEC country is awesome. They love their football and they take it so seriously. I understand there's no NFL teams down there, but what's in the water down there that like gives them like, they're they're crazier than like Giants fans and Eagles fans. Like they're nuts. But have you been to games? Like have. have you gone to an SEC game? Oh yeah, many, many. Well, it's so much fun. Yeah. I mean, time. that was the highlight of going to the University of Tennessee. It was yeah. so much fun going to the football games. You get to hang out with friends. It brings the school together. It brings the community together. It's just a lot of fun. I even too, you know, my girlfriends and I uh, in college, you know, we would go to games at the different universities. We go to Ole Miss. We go to uh, Georgia, and you get got to check out some of the other universities yeah. as well, which was a yeah. lot of fun. Although, did you ever go to Bama? Um, you know what? Tuscaloosa. Yes, actually. Well, no, I don't remember. It was a well, while ago when this? I graduated. Have you, a, have you ever had a yellow hammer? You know what that is? Actually, I did. I I did go to the University of Alabama. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. It's been a while since I graduated, although hopefully nobody knew, knows that because I still look young. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll be, be okay. Yeah. <laughs> or at least that's just what I'm going to tell myself. <laughs> if, I still, if I still go out and get carded, it's a good night, so it makes you feel better about yourself. Definitely. Definitely. But yeah, it's it's beautiful down there. Like I love going to Bama. I've never been to Tennessee, so I, sh- I can't talk, speak too hard on it. It's beautiful. Yeah. We've got in the, You've got Vol Navy on the water, too, which is a lot of fun, be game, the games. Nice. But thanks so much, everyone. I really appreciate you guys for joining me tonight, and thank you buck for letting me fill in for you have a great night everyone